Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Hi, I'm Pete Buttigieg, and this is The Deciding Decade. On this podcast, we have talked with so many remarkable current and future leaders, some as young as 13 years old, who have given us great hope for the decade and century ahead of us. And today, to close out this series, I wanted to speak with one of the most recognizable leaders of our time, someone who has dedicated her life to service, someone who's built wisdom through decades of experience, and someone who channels all of that into the important work of encouraging people to organize, stay engaged, and run for office someone who is helping to shape the decades ahead. It is a real honor to have Secretary Hillary Clinton as our final guest in the Deciding Decade podcast, a trailblazing attorney, first lady of Arkansas, first lady of the United States, senator, secretary of state, presidential candidate, author, activist, wife, mother, and grandmother. Secretary Clinton is one of the most accomplished public servants that this country has ever produced. And though you know this already, I can't introduce her without pausing on the meaning of the fact that in 2016, she became the first woman ever to be nominated by a major party for the American presidency. She has inspired generations of women in the United States and around the world to believe in themselves and to reach their highest potential, to be gutsy, as she and her daughter Chelsea often say. I have been personally inspired by her barrier-breaking work, her command of the issues that face our country, and her unstoppable dedication to service. Secretary Clinton, thank you so much for joining. Oh, it is such a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm honored to be uh, I guess your last guest for uh, this season of your new podcast. Couldn't think of a, a better way to <laughs> wrap up the year. And, you know, we, we call it the deciding decade because it's really about how the decisions that are being made now are going to shape the, the trajectory of the country. And that's one of the things I really want to explore with you. But I want to begin with news from this week. This week began with you as a member of the Electoral College casting your vote for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, I think you and I agree that 
the U.S. would be better off without the Electoral College as a matter of policy, as a personal matter. If it weren't for the Electoral College, you'd be the president of the United States right now. So I wonder, what was it like to go through this process, to be an elector, and to uh, uh, have that chance to cast that vote? It was incredibly uh, moving to me, Pete, because I feel like we are at such a pivot point in our country. And you're so right about the name of your podcast, the decisions that we now have an opportunity to try to make, uh, thanks to the outcome of the election, are going to be so consequential because, frankly, there's a lot of damage to repair as well as trying to get, you know, back into big, bold uh, ideas. And so when I was asked if I would be a member of the Electoral College, I I paused for a minute because I've been on record since 2000 advocating for its abolition. I think it has long uh, outlasted any uh, usefulness uh, that it had. But at the same time, I thought it would be a a good signal uh, that we were all coming together to participate in this historic constitutional uh, ritual. I could not have guessed how the attacks against the integrity of the election uh, would play out and how desperate uh, Trump and his enablers were to try to overturn the results. Um, So dropping that ballot in for Joe Biden and a ballot in for Kamala Harris made it feel like, okay, we're really ready to move on uh, from uh, what we've had to uh, live with the last four years. You know, I I remember studying in the UK, which is considered a constitutional country, constitutional monarchy, but uh, never wrote their constitution down. And I thought that was the strangest thing to try to get my head around, only to realize, I think, in the last year or so, how much of our system depends on the unwritten rules, like Mm -hmm. the idea that when you're defeated, you concede. It doesn't say anybody has to do that. It doesn't say officially what, what happens or doesn't happen. And yet we've learned how important it is for our democratic legitimacy, uh, how somebody who, who's defeated in an election acts. And uh, I wonder what you think it will take to shore up some of the dimensions of our democracy that are really only protected by everybody believing in them and everybody abiding by them. And if we don't, it could all fall apart. Well, you're absolutely right. And and you wrote a whole book about uh, the glue that holds a system like ours together, namely trust. And there's very little of it right now. It's been badly uh, damaged. And I think what President-elect Biden is trying to do is to lay the groundwork for unifying the country. It's going to be incredibly hard because of all of the misinformation and poison that has been injected into the minds of so many Americans, but he is absolutely right to try. I think you have to bolster that in addition to setting an example and demonstrating what the values and the standards, the norms, as we like to say, should be. We might have to take a hard look at trying to pass legislation that uh, put up some more guardrails. And I'm sorry about that. I wish I weren't even uh, contemplating it. But You know, there are certain things uh, that maybe we haven't passed on as we should or uh, taught in school or civics uh, that should be just assumed. You mentioned one, like you have every right to make a fair argument against an outcome of an election if there's evidence uh, and facts to back it up. 
But when there isn't, it's time to retreat and concede. From what I know, talking to uh, people on the Biden transition, they're very focused on an agenda to protect our democracy, to protect our elections. And I I hope that they're going to be able to enact uh, a lot of that because we're going to have to change some of the uh, expectations and the behaviors so that you know, people get used to once more understanding what the rules are and accepting them no matter who says what on social media. It's going to be so important, I think, for us to find that that ground truth that we can trust in, knowing that that, mm-hmm. that information and misinformation is swirling around. And like you, I've seen how intentional President-elect Biden has been uh, about trying to prepare us as a country for that. Um, speaking of the groundwork that, that's being laid, I also wanted to um, ask you for advice in a way that I, I would be doing uh, even if we were just on the phone instead of on a podcast. Uh, so right about the time this podcast comes out, uh, we're expecting to uh, officially make the announcement that I'll be nominated as Secretary of Transportation for the new administration. And so uh, you were uh, a cabinet secretary, one of the most visible cabinet secretaries in my lifetime. Um, and the question I want to put to you is, what does it take to be a good an effective secretary in a president's cabinet? Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. I'm thrilled by the news that uh, you're going to be nominated and hope that uh, your confirmation is smooth and quick so that you can assume uh, the responsibility. I think it takes, you know, several things and, and you're well acquainted having been in an executive position as mayor Uh, running a city government, and then, of course, running a a presidential campaign, which is quite an undertaking. First of all, you have to do the work. You have to really immerse yourself into transportation policy, into the workings of the transportation department. Uh, I had been uh, involved in foreign uh, relations, international matters for quite some time before uh, President-elect Obama asked me to be uh, Secretary of State, but I was blessed to have a great briefing uh, prepared for me. The transition team cooperating with the outgoing Bush administration was ready and willing to give me a very in-depth education quickly about uh, how the State Department actually worked, not just the outside view, but from, you know, the ground up, you should do exactly the same so that you are the master of your brief. Uh, Because first and foremost, you've got to demonstrate in any of these cabinet positions that uh, you're going to be a good steward. You're going to uh, lead and manage a diverse, complicated uh, department, and you're going to be really grounded, uh, literally, in uh, what it's going to take to get results. Secondly, I think working with the incoming administration, you have to set some goals. What is it that the president will want the Department of Transportation to do? Clearly, just from my looking at it from this perspective, you're going to be part of climate change. You have to be part of the overall administration approach to climate change. You have to be part of trying to restore confidence in public transportation post-pandemic. We cannot deal with climate change. We cannot get essential frontline workers uh, to their jobs if people are afraid to take public transportation. What is that going to take and how much of an investment is required? I hope that you'll be 
given the chance to advocate for high-speed rail, for other kinds of transportation that will, you know, set us in good stead for the future. And then, you know, finally, you've got to deal with all the legacy. You've got to do everything to make sure that, uh, you know, roads are maintained and bridges are fixed. And you've got to look hard at what happened with the FAA and its uh, hasty approval of uh, the last big Boeing jetliner. All of that is in your bailiwick now. And so the nuts and bolts, getting it to run well, immersing yourself in understanding how it works now, coming up with how it should be changed to work better in the future, and what are the signature issues that the president and you want to elevate. Uh, so it's a great time. I mean, autonomous vehicles are coming online. You've got all sorts of advances in powering transportation that I hope the federal government can help uh, accelerate. So you're in a great place to help shape the kind of future that uh, we hope to have. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. You know, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is the chance to engage with uh, a lot of mayors coming with a mayor's eye view in, in a lot of states. And I know that, that even though most of the country got to know you as a national figure, you were deeply involved in, in state and local government policy and, and advocacy. You co-founded Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. You chaired the Arkansas Educational Standard Committee. I, I wonder, as we come into the 2020s, how you think the role of state and local government in politics has evolved and, and what you think some of the opportunities ahead are? I think that's such a great question, Pete. And, and I am a huge believer in the laboratories of democracy concept, both at the state and local level. We need to try different things. We need to learn uh, from what states and cities do. We need to try to take successful initiatives to scale. Um, I was really lucky in my work in Arkansas. You mentioned two things that I was involved in. Uh, and I combined that with uh, a lot of my more national endeavors, uh, chairing the Legal Services Corporation, chairing the Children's Defense Board, because there is nothing like that experience. Like, okay, Practically, how do we go from point A to point B? And what are the impediments? Because 
you, you have to know how state and local government work, especially if you're at the federal level. Otherwise, you can have the grandest of ideas, but even if you pass a piece of legislation, it may or may not uh, be successfully implemented. Uh, so you're bringing to your federal service in the cabinet that kind of local experience. And of course, it shouldn't make you a naysayer. They go, oh, you know, it didn't work here and therefore it can't work anywhere. But it should inform uh, especially new and bold ideas about what could work. How can we uh, make federalism work better, for example? Uh, What are the big ideas and who's been working on them in local communities? I served for um, my Senate years on the uh, environmental uh, uh, committee. And for reasons that were interesting, uh, we had the... um, responsibility for the highway bill and for transportation. So within the the ambit of the jurisdiction of the environmental committee, we had to reauthorize highway bills. We had to reauthorize uh, uh, public transit money. Uh, so I learned a lot about what the federal government used to do. I can't speak for where it is now, four years after the Trump administration, uh, but you should you know, get really briefed up on all of this. And I know that the transition has terrific people uh, that can do that for you. Yeah, it's part of what really excites me is, is plunging into that. And and also the fact that, you know, like local government, it, it's a relatively non-ideological field, at least it ought to be. Anything, as we've learned, I mean, even public health measures can can become partisan or ideological. But this is something that pretty much everybody wants to see happen. Uh, better, smarter, greener infrastructure, job creation that comes with it. You know, infrastructure has always been, uh, at least among the American people, maybe not right. always on the floor of the Senate. But it sometimes takes, you know, just hammering away at it. I remember when bike trails, you know, yeah. rails to trails were really controversial in the committee on, on which I served. But there were a dedicated group of people who just kept raising it every time and kept saying, you know, we need more, uh, you know, bike access into towns and between communities and the rest. And, you know, when they started, you know, people kind of, you know, turned away from them and rolled their eyes. But now we can see the results of the kind of steady, insistent advocacy uh, that uh, can change, can change communities, uh, in my view, for the better. It's it's a great point. And, you know, as mayor, I benefited from what was clearly decades of, of pushing a boulder uphill because by the time I arrived in the early part of the last decade, there you still took a push. I took a lot of heat for advancing it, mm-hmm. but there was much more energy for that. So it's a good reminder that that kind of change can happen and and, uh, and, and that you can be in a position to to do something about it. And and one last thing that that, you know, I would just add is, you know, make sure that the briefing you get looks at good ideas from around the world. Uh, You know, oftentimes we don't take advantage of the uh, trial and error that's gone on in other countries about how to move people around and what the choices are and the financing uh, happens to be. Uh, So, you know, be sure that you've got that international view. I mean, I know it's a hard sell. It's hard to go to Congress and say, well, you know, in the European Union right. or in Japan or China, uh, because, you know, nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear, okay, I want to talk to me about America. But if you have a good basic understanding of what's working elsewhere, then you can look as to how to Americanize it. How, how would it work? What are some other ways of dealing with connectivity and 
getting people from one place to the next uh, in a cost-effective way? And how much does any government have to subsidize that? And to be fair, we have totally subsidized the automobile industry in so many ways for so many decades. And obviously, we subsidize the airplane industry. And we don't do it to the extent that we used to. And we actually had uh, you know, specific rules about how many flights had to go into certain small airports to keep them alive. We, we have moved away from that. But we should be thinking about what makes for a good, livable society. And, you know, maybe readjust our thinking mm-hmm. about the, you know, the cost we're willing to pay in order to create a much more functioning, productive society. And in a lot of rural areas, that helps to attract and keep businesses. You can get there faster. Yeah. You can get in and out faster. So I think it's all part of a, a big um, you know, hub of uh, issues that you're going to have a great time diving into. Yeah, the, the point about rural communities is, I think, really important, too, because this is something that can knit together, literally connect exactly. uh, urban and rural, the moment when we have such kind of political, social, cultural, economic divisions between different different kinds of communities. And, you know, I think about it from the perspective of my own community, South Bend. I mean, our city is named after a bend in a river and that waterway created uh, trade routes. And, and then our community really emerged around uh, the transportation industry around uh, uh, vehicles, uh, train, r- rail lines uh, made the industry uh, possible around here. And then uh, literally direct jobs from that industry as, as uh, workers in this community built aeronautical components, Studebaker cars, uh, really built us up. And, and today in different ways, but today too, this, this is such an important part of what's made life in, in, in this part of the country possible. Uh, so it's 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 a really exciting field, I think. Oh, I do too. I'm very excited for you. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. One thing I, I heard that uh, you would begin your days with uh, on, on the trail was a, a, a reflection on, on scripture. This is something I didn't realize we, we had in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder how, you know, Democrats aren't known for uh, wearing our, our faith mm-hmm. on our sleeve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for very good reason, I think, because, you know, we're very attuned, certainly in the LGBTQ uh, community, just as one example, we're, we're attuned to the harms that can come when, when somebody seeks to impose their interpretation of their religion on someone else. But uh, I sometimes wonder if we lose something as a party by, by not being as forthcoming mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. so many of us uh, come in faith. Um, how do you yeah. approach that? How, do you, how did you decide how and when and whether to, to talk about your own faith? Um, it, it was sort of an evolving um, process for me um, because I've always been a person of faith and I've always uh, really... Uh, drawn great strengths from uh, not only uh, personal uh, advisors, uh, clergy, and and thought leaders in uh, faith-related subjects, but also from a lot of the reading uh, that I've done. And you're right that 
somehow religion has been cast as a partisan enterprise uh, where if you don't believe certain things, then uh, you can't be a religious person and in particular a Christian. You know, that's just not what I believe and it's not what I was taught and I don't think it's right. Um, But it's hard to stick your neck out if you believe that people are just going to take all kinds of pot shots at you. Mm -hmm. And the other side, on the religious divide, if you will, um, is so dogmatic and so well organized that they, I believe, have as part of their uh, agenda to delegitimize anyone who claims to be a person of faith who doesn't ascribe to their political partisan beliefs. So I, I think we have left the, the playing field uh, to the other side. And, you know, maybe one thing that you can think about is to find like-minded people within the Biden administration and try to think through how best to present what to me is a, an authentic understanding of one's faith and the complexity of it uh, that would do justice to uh, our beliefs. And, and, you know, I mean, just trying to figure out how to bring basic values, principles of faith uh, into everyday language and experience, because the other side basically is the the faith of fear. Yes. And I was always raised with the faith of hope and love. And so, you know, for me, you know, being understanding and compassionate about our complexity and our differences is something that we're called to do. But we need uh, people to work together uh, to uh, convey that more effectively. So we give, you know, more grounding to those uh, who are people of faith like us, but don't fall into the, the category of politicized uh, religion right now. So you're also a veteran of the U.S. Senate, which is a, <laughs> a, uh, yes, I think yes. a, a challenging place in the best of times, uh, yes, a, a place right. we, we don't know yet whether we're going to have a 50-50 Senate or, uh, or divided government. But any way you cut it, the president-elect is, is going to face a, a real challenge bringing people together. Every member of his administration in, in every area will, will face that. What, what do you think is going to be the most important in order to succeed? And how do you separate you know, the, the areas where there really is some hope of getting uh, getting people to the table from the areas where uh, where you, you just have to watch out for bad faith yeah it's it's going to be very hard I think it's one of uh, you know Joe Biden's biggest challenges uh, because his instincts have always been to bring people together find common ground work out some kind of uh, acceptable compromise and I, I'm amazed at what some of the members say that I actually served with. I was there for eight years. I was both in the minority and in the majority. And when I when I hear people say things who I worked with, I found common ground with, I sponsored legislation with, uh, that is so um, negative and extreme, it's really surprising and saddening to me. Uh, so I don't think there's any alternative to good old-fashioned relationship building, uh, because I, I think that a lot of the work that needs to be done can only, again, to go back to the theme of your book, uh, be built on some kind of uh, trust that is personal, and then you can go from there. 
But I've also been thinking a lot, and I've recently seen a few articles. You know, we got rid of earmarks because they were abused. And, you know, the famous bridge to nowhere, and everybody thought it was such a great achievement to, you know, end that kind of uh, abuse of the public uh, trust. The problem is that we didn't have anything to substitute for working together. So, for example, when I was a senator, I worked with a Republican member of the House uh, who represented uh, Buffalo, the Buffalo area in New York, to earmark money to help a local hospital expand its research capacity. Um, it was it was certainly worthy. It withstood scrutiny. There was no funny business, but it brought us together. So we had a working relationship, and it led to a lot of local and state money and private money uh, being triggered by the federal investment, which built uh, a a research center. Uh, and if you don't have something that encourages people across party lines and even now within our parties to work together. Uh, to serve their constituents, then it unfortunately uh, leads to, number one, greater attention to donors and very extreme demanding interest groups, uh, because that's who's knocking on your door. It's not the mayor of Buffalo or the city council member from Syracuse saying, you know, this bridge is falling down and, and we need federal help. It's somebody saying our way or the or no way for you, and your you know your donations are tied to what we want you to do, et cetera. And a lot of these members then were left without a story to tell. You know what? How are they spending their time? You know they they can't point to infrastructure. They can't point to something that has been done uh, that they had a hand in helping to create because it all goes through kind of nameless formulas. So I've I've been hearing recently that there is a there is talk on on both sides of the aisle across the political spectrum to try to bring back what used to be called earmarks but can be sort of locally uh, uh driven uh projects that would have to pass muster so they couldn't be abused but forcing people to work together on behalf of their constituents because right now you've got you know, the Republicans basically captive of all kinds of forces outside themselves, first and foremost, Trump. Um, and, you know, they, they seem almost incapable of standing up and speaking out in favor of what's best for their constituents, including what's best for our larger uh, democracy. They've got to be equipped with some things that enable them to do that again. So, you know, that's one idea that's been thrown around because right now it is um, who gets, you know, who gets rewarded by uh, the, you know, the supporters and the interest groups that uh, favor, favor you. And that may or may not have anything to do with your constituency. I mean, Mitch McConnell's a perfect example. I mean, he lives in one of the poorest states where people have really suffered. They've suffered under the pandemic. They've suffered under the economy. He has been resistant to providing additional help. He seems mostly interested in protecting a class of donors who want to be free from any liability if they get those, you know, meat lines and chicken lines and other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, work going again. And somehow we've got to break that 
tie and uh, we need some civic bottoms up engagement. I remember when I was a senator, you know, people would come to see me from across the state when it was time to sort of come up with what we were going to promote that would, in their view, make life better in their community. Um, and they were, you know, I would say 90% worthy projects. And, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't recommend them all. You couldn't fight for them all. But it got people at the local level feeling like, you know, I can, I, I can count on somebody in Washington to listen to me about that bridge that's going to collapse or about this, you know, new uh, education center that we are hoping to uh, build. So, I, yeah, I think we got to get back to basics almost. So part of what you're talking about, I think, is the reward system that is that is so out of whack, but but that, you know, a healthy system that rewards good policy and, and good work lead, leads to more action. The other thing you mm -hmm. mentioned is is just interpersonal trust and seeing right. each other as human beings, which is, is of course, especially challenging in, in national politics. Uh, and I wonder how you reflect on maintaining the humanity uh, that, that you have when you participate in politics. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I think mm -hmm. certainly becoming as visible as, as you have become, you get reduced to a cartoon character, a hero or a villain. And uh, I know even for me in, in my short time uh, in uh, national politics, I, I was amazed by how quickly I didn't feel any. I felt like I was the same person. I <laughs> got, got, got up, and, you know, put, put my shoes on, seemed like the same general human being, but just the, in both directions. Um, yeah, but but, yeah. but seeing kind of what the world or certainly the, the Internet and Twitter uh, have to say about you, what have your ways been of, of uh just staying rooted and grounded in, in who you are as a person and how do you keep that robust to all of, of, of these narratives and, and images and everything that just kind of swirls around you, the more visible you get? I think that's a, an incredibly profound question for anybody in the public arena now uh, with the, you know, with social media, it's not just in politics, it's in yeah. every walk of life. If you um, uh, are singled out or, you have uh, attention for whatever it is you do. But speaking about being involved in politics, what always has kept me going is um, the reward I feel from getting something done that I can really look at and feel like, you know, probably but for my efforts, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, that's particularly true in the constituency work that I did, uh, both as First Lady and as a senator, uh, because... It, it is so gratifying to find a way to help solve somebody's problem. And even if it's, you know, just one person in one place, um, it's everything in the world of that person. Uh, it matters, you know, more than anything that they uh, have this problem uh, with the federal government or some other uh, entity uh, resolved. And that reminds you, at least it reminded me, why I do this. Because, you know, there's a lot of grief that goes with it. Yeah. And so, so much made up stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I have just been constantly, uh, you know, just oh, incredible, incredulous about the stuff that is said and, and uh, attributed, attributed to you. So you got to have some, as you say, ground truth. You've got to feel like you are. Um, doing this for the right reason, uh, and that you stay as open as possible. I mean, it it is it is not easy to sort of take the slings and arrows, um, but if you are comparing yourself to somebody that is really in a terrible spot, who has all kinds of 
you know, health problems, uh, who's, you know, lost a, a child to gun violence, whatever it might be, it it so helps you keep it in perspective. You you can't, uh, you know, you can't feel sorry for yourself. You can't say, oh, poor me, you know, they're so mean to me, et cetera. You just have to get up every day and say, oh, what can I do today? How yeah. can I make a difference? And there's that uh, great um, scripture about, you know, do not grow weary doing good for in mm. due time uh, you will reap the harvest. You have to believe that. You have to believe that you're part of a larger movement of people who, like you, um, you know, want to be kinder, want to be more compassionate, want to be more effective, juster, fairer, all the things that uh, I believe in, and that you're not going to let the naysayers, uh, you know, tear you down and stop you. There is so much to be learned from the deep well of experience that Secretary Clinton brings, from the local and state levels in Arkansas, the national level as presidential candidate, and the international level as U.S. Secretary of State. And I really admired what she said about retaining her humanity while in the public eye, how getting things done for constituents, solving problems for people, helping people, really has kept her grounded and motivated. And as I wrap up this series with so much ahead for all of us, I want to leave you with an extension of that thought. As we work through the next few months, months that will continue to be difficult, and the decade ahead, which demands so much of us, I still believe more than ever that we're on the precipice of a new and better chapter. And getting there is going to take imagination, boldness, and inclusion. And every day is a chance to draw those values and that inspiration from those around us. As a final word, I want to thank iHeart for helping us bring this podcast to life, especially our fantastic executive producer, Christina Everett, who truly made it all happen. And I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I've learned so much, and I hope you have too. And I'm looking forward to continuing this journey together. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.